we're going to be looking together at, at the passage we've just read. So uh, it really would help you. These, these passages where Paul writes uh, aren't always the simplest or the most straightforward. It's very helpful to have them open uh, before you. So that's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've already sung uh, and named the reality that um, we believe that God is in this place, that he is, uh, is present here with us. And just now we take a moment to, to ask him to, to speak to us. Um, if he's here by his spirit, we long to hear from him. Uh, so let's pray together. Lord, we've just sung that we, we want to be still because we believe that you're in this place. Lord, if you're here, there's, there's nothing that we need more than to hear you speak to us, to, to know what's on your heart, what's on your mind for us. Lord, help us to, to listen and to hear you and to take to heart what you share with us in your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just now, in October of 2011, we are... We've just passed the centenary of the building of the Titanic. I don't know how up to speed you are in your Titanic dates, but it was completed in, in 2000, or 1911. 1911 would do. The centenary of its sinking, as you know, uh, comes in, in 2012. So we're in between those two dates, and if you've been paying attention to the, the media, um, if you've watched what's happening locally, uh, you'll see that we're very much in the Titanic zone. People are very interested in the Titanic at this point. Claire and I watched a, doc a documentary a few uh, months ago, which I found fascinating. It was, uh, it was sort of like a, a drama documentary. It, it, it aimed to explain how it was that this unsinkable ship ended up sinking, and it, it described a catalog of events that needed to occur for the ship to happen. So it talked about the, the bad weather conditions, uh, icebergs being in a much more southerly place than they would normally be. It talked about human error. But the study revealed a factor that I'd never really been aware of. Apparently, the, the steel that was used to make the rivets on the Titanic was of a lower grade, uh, a less expensive grade than it normally would have been and probably should have been. So whenever the ship hit the iceberg and the ship failed, they were making a claim in this documentary that it wasn't so much because of the hole itself torn by the iceberg, but by the inferior rivets the whole way on that side of the ship failing as the pressure built on them. The documentary concluded that using these inferior uh, cheap materials in the building had played a huge part in the demise of the ship. It's important how we build. It's important what materials we use. And that's the issue that the Apostle Paul deals with in the passage that we have read here this morning, the second half of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. So far in chapter 3, Paul's been talking about the believers in Corinth, about their growth or, or their lack of it. And he says they're, they're not growing. He says in the early verses that their jealousy 
and that they're quarreling is evidence of that. They think they're mature, but they're, they're babies. They're fighting among themselves about the nature of true wisdom, about which leader they should follow. But Paul reminds them in verses 5 to 9 that if they really are to mature, that if they're really going to grow in God, it won't be because of any particular teacher. Paul may have planted the seed when he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Apollos may well have watered that seed as he continued the work in Corinth, but only God can bring any growth. It's only, we said last week, when God's Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see the gospel that we can see it. It's only when that same Holy Spirit continues to work in us and through us that we can grow. God makes us grow. In our passage for today, the second half of chapter 3, Paul changes his metaphor. Last week he was talking about the church as a field where growth was happening. This week he starts to talk about a building that needs to be constructed. So if you look at verse 9, you see his transition. He talks about himself and fellow preachers, and he says, we're God's fellow workers. And he says to the church in Corinth, you are God's field, God's building. Look at what he begins to say about this building, verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. Paul's talking about the time that he spent in Corinth where he preached Jesus Christ and him crucified and he says that he laid a foundation for the church with his preaching. He says that he laid the foundation as an expert. It's interesting the the word that he uses. He uses the, the Greek word sophos as a wise one and he's chosen that word intentionally. He wants to say that by preaching Christ and him crucified He has been the true teacher of wisdom. In contrast to anybody else in Corinth who's teaching anything else, Christ and him crucified, that's true wisdom. No one can lay any other foundation, Paul says in verse 11, other than the one that's already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul says, since there's only one foundation and you can't lay another one in, We've got to be careful with our building. Verse 10, each one should be careful how he builds. He elaborates in verse 12, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Paul's basic point is that since the foundation of the building of the church is Jesus Christ and him crucified. We've got to be sure that anything that we build on this foundation needs to be of the same character and the same quality as the foundation. He lists six different materials that we might use in our building. Gold, silver, costly stones, and then wood, hay, or straw. They they seem quite weird choices for building, some of them at least. I think his point is that some of these things are more permanent than others. The first three, the gold, the silver, and the costly stones, they represent a kind of a building that's compatible with the foundation. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. The inferior materials, the wood, hay, and the straw, they represent a form of empty wisdom that's incompatible with the foundation, something that's going to come to nothing. And in verse 13, Paul makes it clear that you could build with the inferior materials. And it would probably look okay for a while, but he says of the builder, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. He says there's a day coming when whatever is built is going to be shown for what it is. It might look okay in the present, but a day's coming when it's going to be seen for what it is. The Titanic did look impressive when she set sail. But when she was tested, her materials and her construction were proved inferior. So it is with the church in the end. No matter how she looks in the present, she'll be tested and there'll be no bluffing in the end. All work that we do in the church will be shown in the end either to be firmly built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and therefore work that will last or else simply the wisdom of this age, simply something that seemed like a good idea to us at the time and it will come to nothing. The builder who's done the Christ-centered gospel work will receive a reward. We're not told what it is. And the builder who simply peddled their own ideas will find that their work disappears before their eyes. They'll suffer loss, we're told. But even now, God is gracious and says they don't lose their salvation. Sorry, I've tried to teach my way through those few verses. Isn't this an absolutely crucial passage for the whole of the church today? For us in Kirkpatrick Memorial in 2011, because it asks us to go right to the heart of everything that we do, and we're warned to be careful how we build. The foundation for this church has been laid. I hope we're all clear about what the foundation is. Paul laid a foundation in Corinth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I pray by the grace of God that that same foundation is understood to be ours here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. How are we going to build on that foundation? Are we going to revert now to, to human systems and ideas the wisdom of the world that we see lived out around us. Let's maximize our influence in the public sphere, one person might say. Let's market the church better, another might say. How about researching people's felt needs so that we can ensure that our message connects precisely with what they're asking? In the final judgment, all this kind of building will be shown up for what it is. A human thing, 
our thing, but not the thing of Christ and of the gospel. If that's the bad news, then the good news this morning is that we can build something now that will last forever. We can be part of something that will stand for eternity. If we build using materials that are in keeping with the foundation, if, if the Jesus Christ and Him crucified, then we will build here a glorious church worthy of our Savior. And we'll receive a reward and enjoy our work with Him forever. So let's be careful how we build, Paul says. In verses 10 to 15, Paul has urged us to build with care. In verses 16 to 17, he tells us why it matters so much, why it's such a big deal. It's because this temple that he's talking about, this, or sorry, this building isn't any old building. It's the temple of God. There were two words you could use for temple in those days. There was one that meant the whole place, the whole complex, if you like. And then there was one that meant the inner place where the presence of the deity was known to be. Paul uses that second phrase here. The inner place. The place where the God is present. And it's an image that both the Jew, Jewish Paul and his Gentile audience would have understood. For Paul, the, the word temple would have brought, him, brought an image to his mind of, of the people of God the Jewish people of God, Israel of the Old Testament, they were never called God's temple as such, but they were to be the people among whom God would dwell and be seen to dwell on this earth. A Gentile in Corinth might not have known anything about that, but he would have understood this metaphor because the city was full of temples and it was understood that the temple of Zeus is the place you go to meet with Zeus. The temple of Aphrodite is the place where you go to meet with Aphrodite. That's where her presence is to be found. A temple is the place you go to meet with that God. So both Jews and Gentiles understand that, but Paul here makes an astonishing claim. He says to the church in Corinth, you're it. Not a building. You're the building. You guys collectively are the place where the Spirit of God is to be found in Corinth. Whenever Christians gather in Jesus' name, they become the place where Christ dwells, where God makes himself at home among human beings. That's what makes a church a church. It's not the building. It's not the music, whether it's new or old. It's not the traditions. It's the presence of God's Holy Spirit. The church is a temple, a place where God chooses to live. In verse 17, Paul describes this temple as a, a holy place. It's, it's, it's different. This temple is an alternative 
to the whole of life in the city of Corinth. The church stands over and against all the false religion in Corinth. It stands over and against all the vice and immorality that we thought about when we introduced the city. So when the Corinthians turn their back on the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they drive the Holy Spirit out of the temple, what they do is they take away the one viable alternative that there is for the city of Corinth. The presence of God in the city goes missing. If people in Corinth weren't able to find the living God among God's people in the church, then they weren't going to find him. The temple is vacant. There is no presence of the living God. Do you see now why it matters that we are careful how we build? Do you see how it matters that nothing is more important than to live in a way that we, we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit in our church life? Friends, we see again that the church can't be our church. It can't be mine or it can't be yours. We see in a new way this morning that the church must be holy. God is holy. His temple, therefore, has to be holy. It must be set apart for His purposes. And if we are to be the temple of God in this part of the city, we must be holy. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, maybe we test it best by way of a question. Tell me this about Kirkpatrick Memorial. Could you invite a neighbor along with you on a Sunday morning to a gathering like this and be fully confident that when they come here to this place that they would find us as a community powerfully indwelt by God's Holy Spirit? Would they know that they have found here something different an alternative to the, the pagan, materialistic, and hopeless culture in which we live. That's God's desire for us. That we would be a temple of His presence in East Belfast. This should be our prayer. That we would be a place where people can come and find the living God. In the remaining verses of chapter 3, Paul summarizes a lot of what he's been teaching over these last three chapters about wisdom and about boasting in a particular leader. About wisdom, he says, don't deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he might become wise. He says, you think you're smart because you know the latest ideas? You're conversant with the latest philosophies and theologies? If you really want to be smart, loosen your grip on these things so that you can take a firm grip on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. 
You might be a fool before your colleagues and your friends, but you'd be wise before God. We're almost finished here this morning, and, and I wonder how you found yourself responding this morning and, and maybe these last few weeks as we've looked at some of Paul's teaching here in God's Word. This, this call to a commitment to preach only Christ and Him crucified. The call in this morning's passage to be careful how we build, to make sure that our materials have the same quality as the gospel foundation. Does it seem very narrow to you? Very restrictive? Do you find yourself frustrated by the idea that everything in church needs to be about Jesus and about the cross? Paul shows in the final couple of verses that nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel is not narrow or restrictive. The gospel opens the door to the widest horizons of all. It's not those who, who stick to the gospel who live in their own life. No, it's those who are seduced from it. Who find that they'll settle for something less. Some new teaching, some wisdom, some new leader. Paul says in verse 21, No more boasting about men. All things are yours. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you're of Christ and Christ is of God. When Jesus Christ died and rose again, his Father gave him all things in the form of a cross God planted on this earth, a flag that says this, all of this belongs to me. In Jesus Christ, God wants to share it all with us. That's why we don't follow anyone, any leader, Christian or otherwise. That's why we're careful not to become infatuated with any particular project or philosophy or way of life because it's all a form of captivity. It's all about diminishing and reducing our lives. It's far, far too narrow, far too restricted of you. The whole universe is ours when we're in Christ Jesus then we don't belong. We aren't captive to anyone or anything. We live for the one who makes us free. All are yours, and you're of God, and Christ is of God. Brothers and sisters, let's be careful how we build. Let's not build a church with second-rate materials. Let's build with materials that always point people to the foundation, to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
I haven't written this in my sermon notes, but I feel prompted to, to say it to you now. Could I invite you to pray for us in the church leadership? As I spent time with this passage this week, I couldn't help but feel the burden of that responsibility. To be sure that we build with integrity on the, the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not, not easy. Week by week and month by month, we make concrete decisions that determine the quality of what we're building here under God. Please pray for us. Uh, we need, need God's grace and his discernment always. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us your son, Jesus. You've laid a foundation for your church at great cost. Help us always to pay attention to Jesus and the gospel. Help us to always long to do work in keeping with everything that you've done for us. Help us to be co-builders co with you and not to strive in other directions. And Lord, give us the wisdom of your Holy Spirit to see it all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.